Good morning, Fairfax. We're so glad you decided to join us today, whether you're in the blue seats, in the great room, or online, welcome. We have exciting news for you. For Easter, we have four services at 8 a.m., 9.30, 11 o'clock, and 12.30 p.m. Have you been thinking about inviting somebody to Fairfax and enjoy the spirit we have here? Invite them to Easter. More information will follow. Well, church, today we are releasing our new Fairfax merch. We believe that these t-shirts and sweatshirts represent who we are as a church and as a community. You can use these as tools to start conversations about the gospel in your neighborhoods. This month, we're tithing off of the proceeds to go towards our Ukrainian Relief Fund. If you're interested, you can head to the coffee shop after service, or if you're not here today, come by throughout the week. Our first 2022 Night of Worship event is scheduled for Wednesday, May 25th. I'm a little new here. Last year's Night of Worship service left me with goosebumps. Come join us and let's raise the roof with the Spirit of the Lord. More information can be found on our website through the events page. Coming this summer is Camp Grow, and this year's theme is On the Case. We're gonna be teaching our kids how to deepen their faith, share their faith, and learn the value of serving. I was there last year and it was a blast, and I'm super excited to join the worship team this summer. If you're interested, sign up on our website. Well, today after service, we'd like to invite you on a tour of our resource center. This is a time where you can take a peek at the behind the scenes work that goes on to this amazing ministry. But before we do that, we'd like to share with you a video that just gives you a glimpse of what goes into the resource center. Check it out. Church, the Lord has told us what is good, and this is what he requires of us, to act justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Micah 6, 8. What would it mean for our church to be a center for those in need of kindness and justice? What if our church closed the doors? Would there even be an impact in our community? This is the question that we asked ourselves. And now impacting our community is the mission of the Resource Center. And a year later, we're supporting those that are serving some of the most vulnerable children and families in Fairfax County. Over the years, I've read a lot about Afghanistan and I developed a true fondness for its people. So when the evacuation started, I contacted Valerie Nolan and asked her if the church was helping. It turns out that she was helping unaccompanied minors that were coming in and needed new clothing and hygiene products. So I rushed to Target on my first shopping mission. There would be many after that. We also put together uh, food boxes for them, familiar foods that they can make at home. The Resource Center is involved in so many different projects and you get back tenfold compared to what you give or what you serve. The Resource Center has also over the past two Christmases provided Christmas gifts for our teen moms and their babies. All 36 of them, they are just blown away when we get to give them uh, Christmas gifts when they may not receive that many or any. These frontline mission workers serve our community and are advocating for not just one or two families, but they're advocating for all of us. And they need our care and our love and our kindness, and most importantly, our prayers. It's been wonderful to just know that I'm not alone trying to help this large family, that I can rely on the resource center, on, on the community, and it wouldn't have been 
easy for me to help them if it hadn't been for the church and the resource center. There is such high physical need that we recognize that without meeting those physical needs first, we can never really earn the right to share the gospel with them. And so having the resource available to us allows us to, to meet those physical needs and then earn the right to share about the love of Jesus with our teen moms. We started out small with new people coming in each week and then people stay. And now we have this community, this family that we check on each other, we look after each other, we care for each other. And it's just such a great place to be. Since we opened our doors in 2021, we have served hundreds of families and seen countless needs met in only ways that God could provide. We have 994 people as a part of our volunteer hub for Love Your Neighbor projects. It has truly only been through generous donations and hours put in by our rock star volunteers that we are making an impact. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Fairfax. God has truly done great things. And we celebrate and we reflect with you on all that he has done. And this is really only the beginning. I cannot wait to see what God is gonna do with the Resource Center. Yeah, let's celebrate that. So I wanna just say a word about um, the Resource Center. It, I think it's easy to look at some of this and, and kind of get the visuals and all of that and go, oh, this is kind of like a glorified food pantry. No, it's not. That our goal as a church is that no child in Fairfax County goes without. Like that's our desire. No child goes without. We live in one of the richest counties, um, in one of the richest, if not the richest nation on the face of the planet at probably um, the richest time in the history of humanity. And, and to have kids in this kind of setting who are going without is just, I, I think it breaks God's heart. And our desire as a church is to address that. And we felt like the best way to address that was not just kind of doing our own thing, but recognizing that there are all these amazing organizations and individuals in this county that are on the front lines of responding to the needs of kids and their families. And we wanted to partner with them for two, for two purposes. One, to help resource them so that they can get resources to do what God has called them to do uh, and not have to go through some of the bureaucratic red tape sometimes that you have to do to do that, uh, but to also uh, develop relationships with them, care for them, connect them with each other. So many times there are things that are going on that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, and we feel like in developing those partnerships, it just magnifies everything that we're able to do. And so the actual resource center in our facility is in many ways just kind of symbolic almost of everything that God is positioning us to do. And so I encourage you after the service uh, to, uh, to, to go and be a part of the, the tour and to hear a little bit more about the strategy of what it is that we feel that God has led us to do. Uh, and thank you so much for your support of this place. You make these kinds of things and so many other things that we're doing to help uh, give expression in practical ways to the love of Jesus. You make that possible through your generosity. All right, so we're in the fourth week of this series uh, called A Journey with Jesus to the Resurrection. And I've mentioned every week that we're focusing on eight chapters, uh, chapters of, of Matthew, chapters 21 through 28, and are using that kind of as the guide 
uh, for this journey. And the first week we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, the second week we looked at a parable that Jesus taught that helps us to understand a parable of, of, of the banquet, the great banquet. It helps us understand what the kingdom is all about. Last week we talked about the Lord's Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper that Jesus did in the midst of Passover and everything that that means. And if you miss those, I hope that you get a chance to go back and, and to listen because we really are on kind of a journey that is building. This week, we're looking again in chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 36 through 46, and the text is what happens after the Lord's Supper. So we're told um, that after the Lord instituted the, the, his supper and reminded them of what he was going to do on the cross, that they sang a hymn and then they went out. And where they went out was across the Kidron Valley to, um, uh, to a garden uh, called Gethsemane. And actually, um, one of the things that's kind of cool as we talk about this particular text is that uh, we're taking a group uh, to Israel and to Jordan in October and one of the things that we'll be doing, not all of the places that are mentioned in Scripture or in the New Testament, even in Jesus' narrative, are easy to identify. This one is very, very easy to identify. And while we're on this uh, journey through Israel and Jordan, uh, we'll be able to actually be um, at the Garden of Gethsemane and to reflect on what took place there. And, and I would just say we've, we've had a lot of interest in this trip and a lot of folks have already signed up, but we still have uh, slots available. If you're interested, if you've been thinking about doing a trip, maybe you've been thinking about, I really want to do this and just have never gotten around to this. This really will be kind of the perfect opportunity to do that. It's a 10-day trip, and you can find out more about it. Just go to our website, Global Impact Trips, under our outreach uh, page, and you can find out a ton about it. So Jesus... Um, taught his disciples to pray this prayer. Remember Jesus, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, will you teach us to pray? We see that your prayer life is so, um, just so intense and, and filled with so much efficacy. Would you teach us to pray? And so Jesus gives them this prayer that has been uh, a model prayer for 2,000 years and certainly has been a model prayer for our church and we've leaned into it so much. And part of that prayer is where Jesus says uh, to pray that, that, that my kingdom would come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and that has become, in many respects, kind of part of the vernacular of our church, that we have kind of talked about that in the terms of in Fairfax as it is in heaven, that we want God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in this place and in our lives uh, just as it is in heaven. And what's interesting about that prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is not only was it something that he gave to us as a model prayer, it's the prayer he prayed when he was in the garden, that part of the prayer. That not, not my will, Father, but, but your will be done. And uh, the text that we're looking at today um, is the context for that prayer, which has so many implications and so many things to kind of teach us. And so I want us, first of all, just to kind of read the text. And so uh, just in honor of the gospel, would you stand together as I read uh, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46? This is Matthew's account. 
When Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go to pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So stay here and keep watch with me. In other words, I want you to pray with me. And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping, <laughs> um, stayed up and watched too much NCAA basketball, whatever it was, they, 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 they couldn't stay awake. And so they're sleeping. He says, could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found the disciples sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can have... You can have a seat. One of the things that you notice as you read this passage, and this is filled with such um, depth, this passage in terms of Jesus' encounter, is you begin to see the agony that Jesus experiences in the garden. This is on the eve of his trial, the eve of his crucifixion, and you begin to see the agony that he experiences. We're told that Jesus in the garden was sorrowful and troubled, and that his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. So the Greek word that's translated sorrowful there means like in agony, in excruciating agony. And the word translated trouble means to be horrified by something or to be shocked by something. So in other words, in that moment, Jesus is feeling a sense of horror and a sense of agony that he's going to actually die right there in the garden that that before he even gets to the cross like he is so overwhelmed by the experience in the garden he is so filled with agony he is so filled with horror that he feels like in this moment I'm going to die now the horror that Jesus is experiencing is not the fear of death it's not that he's afraid of death and it's not uh, the fear about the pain of dying sometimes uh, you know, we talk about, well, I'm not afraid of death, but like I'm just afraid of dying and everything that is involved with that. Um, that's not what Jesus is afraid of here or dealing with here. There have been lots of followers of Jesus, including some notable martyrs who have faced death, not with a sense of horror, not like Jesus was facing this, not with a sense of horror, not with a sense of, of you know, like sorrow in that sense, but with a confidence and even a joy, not a joy in death itself because death is the enemy, but a joy in being in relationship with the one who has been victorious over death. So there's lots of examples of followers of Jesus who have faced death with confidence and even a sense of joy. And Jesus' horror is not because he's somehow caught off guard by what is about to happen. He's been talking about this his entire ministry. 
For his entire ministry, over and over again, he told his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And over and over again, they refused to believe it. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. So this moment is not something that like caught Jesus off guard. He saw this coming. He understood what this was all about. He knew the purpose of what was about to happen. And Jesus' horror is not because the reality of his death has somehow gone from something that was just kind of cognitive to something more real now that it's within 24 hours of happening. That, that happens to probably most people in, in some sense when, when death goes from this cognitive reality um, like, I know I'm going to die. I know everybody's going to die. I know that that's our fate. Like there's this sense of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I know that we don't live forever until we put our faith in Jesus and we spend eternity with him. Like, I know that I'm going to die. It goes from this kind of cognitive reality to something at times that is much more imminent. And when that happens, when death gets more imminent, like it gets real at a whole other level. I've been dealing with that, dealing with my cancer diagnosis, is that it's not that I have not known my whole life, yes, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. That is part of the reality of life, this side of heaven. But when you go through something where it becomes more imminent, it just gets real at a whole other level. And I I know that we have other folks in our congregation who are dealing with similar kinds of things and going through a similar kind of journey. And and have talked about the fact it just gets real at another level. But that's not what's happening with Jesus. The reality of his death wasn't just like this cognitive thing for three years, and then all of a sudden he gets to the garden, and he's on the eve of his crucifixion, and all of a sudden it hits him of what's going to happen. It just gets real at a whole other level. That is not what's going on. Something else is going on. Something so horrific that it, it forces him. We're told that he falls to the ground. Something so horrific that we're told in one of the other gospels that parallels this one, that he begins to bleed, sweat blood out of the pores of his skin. Something that is so horrible that it fills him with, with agony and it causes him in his humanity to cry out three times to the father. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Like, I don't want to do this. I do not want to do this. I, if, it's, if there's any way possible, let this cup be taken from me. Now, why is that? Like, what is different about what Jesus is facing and what other Christ followers have faced, even martyrs who have been put to death for their faith in Jesus? Like, what's different about what Jesus is facing and what many other followers of Jesus have faced? It's the cup. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, the term cup wasn't just referring to like some horrible ordeal, right? Like like having to drive on the beltway at rush hour. Like that's not, like in the Old Testament, that's not what it's talking about. Or having to go to DMV or being on hold with your phone carrier for over an hour. And then finally having someone come on and say, oh, you've got the wrong department. Can I just put you on hold? It's like, no, you know, don't send me back to purgatory. Like I've been there for a long time that, that in the old Testament it's talking about the cup. It's not just talking about like 
painful experiences, hard experiences, difficult experiences, whatever. In the Old Testament, when the prophets used the term cup, they used it to talk about God's judgment. They used it to talk about God's justice. It was God's judgment on human evil. The cup was about God pursuing justice. And you see that in so many passages in the Old Testament. I could read so many of the prophets and the way they use the term the cup. But you see that, for instance, in Isaiah 51, where we're told, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, the goblet of my justice, the goblet of my judgment, you will never drink again, and I will put it into the hands of your torment. I'll take this cup and I'll put it on someone else. And that's literally what we see Jesus doing here. In the garden, Jesus is staggering, literally staggering under the weight of God's judgment, under the weight of God's justice. And it's not a justice that's coming down on him because of his sin. It's a justice that is coming down on him because of our sin, a judgment that is coming down on him because of the sins of the entire world. The cup of God's justice is being transferred from us to him. And in the garden, Jesus is beginning to experience what he will experience in all of its fullness when he hangs on that cross. Now, here's what we often miss about God's judgment. That God's judgment, God's justice is not primarily about God inflicting pain. God's judgment is about God removing his presence. God's judgment is reality void of God's presence. And that's hard for us to, to even imagine or begin to fathom a reality that is void of the presence of God. Because even if you don't believe in God, even if you don't buy this whole God thing, even if you've not put your faith in what Christ has done for you, like regardless of where you are, you are surrounded by the presence of God. You are surrounded by the things of God. You're surrounded by the, the beauty of God's creation. You are surrounded by the life that God created, that, that you're experiencing life that is in and of itself a gift from God. So it's hard for us, even if, even if you don't believe in God, it's hard for us to even get our minds around the concept of a reality void completely of the presence of God. The horror and agony that Jesus is experiencing in the garden is not the horror of death or it's not the horror of suffering. It's the horror of God the Father removing his presence. That's why when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The judgment on our sins wasn't just the physical pain of the cross, which is what we so often focus on. It was that in that moment, the complete and total absence of God's presence was what Jesus experienced on the cross. And for the Son of God, think about this, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, who's lived in intimate, who has lived in intimate fellowship with his Father for all of eternity. The horror and agony of that pain, of not 
having the presence of God, of there being the absence of the Father in his life is unimaginable. It is hell in and of itself. And in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, which parallels the Gospel of Matthew on this account, theologian and author William Lane described this moment in the garden this way. He says, this dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup sprang is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering. It is rather the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father and who came to the garden, who came to be with the Father, to have intimate presence with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. Throughout scripture, the promise of God is obey me, trust me, put your faith in me, and I will be with you. I will be present with you. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how scary it is, trust me, God says. That's the message of the narrative of scripture. Trust me and I will be with you. I will be present with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. But here Jesus is being asked to trust the Father, to obey the Father, to, to do the will of the Father. And the result is not God's presence. The result is God's absence. And that's the last thing Jesus wants. So he cries out to the Father. Father, if it is possible, like take this cup from me. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to not experience your presence. I can endure anything if I know that you are with me, but I don't want to experience your absence. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, what does it mean to live that kind of life out in in just practical terms. What does it mean to, to live a not my will, but your will be done kind of life? Well, let me just real quickly mention five things. One, it means behaving the same in the dark as you do in the light. In the garden, Jesus is in the dark. And, and he's, he's in the dark physically. It's literally the middle of the night when he is in the garden, but he's also in the dark and that no one is watching this drama unfold. Like the disciples are asleep. They couldn't even stay awake for an hour. The soldiers haven't shown up yet. He's not surrounded by adoring followers who are waiting for his next inspirational message or his next miracle that he's going to do. He's not surrounded by the thousands of people that often through his ministry he was surrounded by. He is alone. No one else is there but the Father. And yet, even in the darkness, Jesus is in the yes position 
to the Father. There is no difference in the way Jesus functions when he's in the spotlight and everyone is watching what's going on and when he is in the dark and no one is watching but the Father. He is not driven by maintaining his reputation. He is driven by being obedient. And that's what it means to live a not my will, but your will kind of life. Is It's about what we do when no one is watching. It's about being obedient, as obedient in the dark as we are in the light. It's about what you do and say when it's not convenient or, or it doesn't gain you any points with anyone else. It's obedience that is not self-serving. It, it's being the same with one crowd as you are with the other crowd and with the next crowd. It's consistency in your life. It's saying yes to God, even when saying no would be way, way easier. That's the first thing. Second thing is this, living a not my will, but your will kind of life is being emotionally honest. Jesus was emotionally honest in the garden. Like he didn't pretend that the father's absence was something that he desired. He said, if there's any way, father, if there's any way possible, if there's any other way to do this, may that happen. Like that would be my desire. That's what I would like to see happen. And living a not my will, but your will kind of life doesn't mean telling to avoid telling God like what we would like to see happen or what we don't want to see happen. It doesn't mean that we put on some fake spirituality and deny that what we are going through is horrible and awful and, and, and really, really painful. It doesn't mean that we, we stuff our feelings and, and put on a happy face. Like that's not what it means to live a, not my will, but your will kind of life in the garden. Jesus didn't stuff down how he was feeling. He was in such agony. He fell to the ground. He, he sweated blood out of the pores of his skin. He asked the father to remove this cup. He tried to get other people to join with him in that prayer. The disciples failed miserably in that, but that's what he was trying to do. I need you to pray this with me. So don't be afraid to be emotionally honest with God. Don't be afraid to ask for what you want. Don't be afraid to cry out. Don't feel like you have to try and hide the fact that you are hurting. Being able to honestly express those emotions is part of living a not my will, but your will kind of life. So, so often we think that living that kind of life of surrender means somehow pretending that everything is fine and and, and we're happy about everything that's going on and kind of stuffing our emotions down and nothing could be further from the truth. Thirdly, living a not my will, but your will kind of life means trusting God even when you don't understand. So Jesus is emotionally honest, right? He's saying, I don't want this. He's pouring out his heart and yet in the end, he surrenders his will to the Father's will. He, he allows his will to become subservient to the Father's will. And that can be really hard sometimes, especially when what is happening to us does not make any sense to us. Like it's one thing to trust God and to, and to say, not my will, but your will be done when we kind of 
can understand what's going on and maybe have figured some things out. But like when we don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, that becomes so hard. When the timing of it doesn't make sense. Like, why is this happening now? Why am I going through this now? When the pain that you're feeling doesn't make sense. When the idea that God could somehow redeem this or use this in some way doesn't make sense. Like nothing about it makes sense. Living a not my will, but your will be done kind of life means being willing to trust God in those moments. It means, here's what it means. It means setting aside the idea that the most important thing in life is being able to figure things out. Setting aside the idea that the biggest value, the, the most important thing is being able to understand. Because there are some things this side of heaven that you and I will never be able to figure out. And if your highest value in life is figuring things out, if your highest value in life is being able to understand everything about what is going on in your life and how God is at work and all of that, you will end up disillusioned and stuck. And some of you have been at that place and I've at times been at that place and maybe some of you are at that place now where somehow the greatest value, and it's not that we shouldn't ask questions, it's not that we shouldn't try to figure things out. It's not that we shouldn't try to understand how is God working. It's just that it never should become the highest value in our life, the highest thing to attain in our journey of faith. Because when it does, it, it causes us to get stuck. It causes us to become disillusioned. It will fill you with anxiety and cause you to miss out on all the other marvelous things that God is doing in your life and all the other marvelous expressions of God's grace. So trust God, even when you don't understand. Fourth thing is this, living a not my will, but your will kind of life means realizing just how much God loves you. Like you can't put your trust in God. You won't put your trust in God unless you Know and understand the depth of his love for you. Trust grows out of love. That's true in every relationship. Like the degree to which we will trust someone has to do with the degree to which we sense that they care about us, that they love us in some way. That when someone who we're not convinced really cares about us says, trust me on this, like we're not as likely to do that as when someone who pours out their life for us and cares for us and has walked through difficult times with us. And when they say, trust me, there's a, there's just, it's just easier to trust when we know that someone loves us. The reason Jesus trusted the Father is because he knew how much the Father loved him. And the same is true for us. The more convinced we are of God's love, the more you will be able to trust now, here's what's interesting about God's love. It's that understanding God's love involves actually understanding his judgment, understanding his justice. Now, most of us in like 21st century Western culture, like we oftentimes don't want to talk about God's judgment because it seems so harsh. And it's just like, I don't want to talk about the judgment of God. Like, can we just talk about 
Jesus loves us, you know, and God loves us. And I just want to talk about the love of God and not the judgment of God. And that's the, I mean, there's all kind of weird things we say, like, that's the Old Testament God. I want the New Testament God. Like, it's all this stuff where it's just like we try to separate the God who loves us from the God of judgment. And here's, here's why that does not make sense. Because if you try to understand the love of God, you can't understand the magnitude of God's love unless you understand his judgment, unless you understand his justice. That's impossible to do because if you don't understand the judgment of God, you won't understand the love of God. Um, we were talking about Izzy, uh, our intern that is with us, an amazing, amazing young lady and is doing a trellis fellowship uh, with us, which is preparing her for ministry and also allowing her to get an education and come out without debt and all of that. It's an amazing, amazing program. And Izzy was involved in worship last week as well. And she actually closed the service out. And she said something before she closed it out in prayer that I went up to her after the service. I said, Izzy, you said in one sentence more than what it took me 35 minutes to say. Like you, like that one phrase that you turned at the end of the service was like, more than I, I took 35 minutes to say. And basically the statement that she said was this, that sin has a cost. Sin has a cost. Injustice has a cost. Selfishness has a cost. Self-centeredness has a, a cost. And justice demands God's righteous judgment, like that someone pay the cost. And the entire narrative of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire arc of the story that we see in scripture is a story about a God who loves us so much, he's willing to pay the cost for our sins so that we don't have to. He's willing to be destroyed on the cross so that we don't have to be destroyed. And it's realizing the depth of that love that is what frees us up to live a not my will, but your will kind of life. And then the fifth thing is this, that living that kind of life and not my will, God, but your will kind of life means being a passionate worshiper. Like here's the deal for most of us. When we talk about the love of God, if we've run, if we, if we've hung around church very long at all, especially this church, it's just like, yeah, we hear that a lot. We know that. I know that. I know that God loves me. I know that he died for me on the cross. I know that he paid for my sins, all that. We know that cognitively, but how do we like stay focused on that? How do we continue to have our life revolve around that reality in such a way that it shapes how we function and what we do and how we live our lives? How do we not lose sight of that? Like not just cognitively, but like emotionally, what is it that keeps the depth of God's love? Like at the center, at the very center of our life, it's worship. Like that's, that's the purpose of worship is to, is to keep at the center of our life, the degree to which God loves us. If you, here's the deal. If you try to live a life of surrender without truly 
worshiping the one who has surrendered everything for you, you will become resentful and angry. Uh, and, and a lot of people, and especially people that have grown up in the church, is that, that living a life of like, God, not my will, but your will be done, isn't a life filled with a bunch of joy. It's more of an obligation. And it's just like, I don't want to do this. And I don't really think this is the most fun way to live life. And the most fun way to deal with this relationship or this thing or whatever it is. But I know I'm supposed to do it. And out of guilt, maybe I feel like I should do it. And so, and so our, our kind of posture is, God, not my will, but your will be done. You know, and it, and it just, what it does over time and I've met folks who have journeyed with the Lord for a while, and it seems like at some level they are trying to live this, not my will, but your will be done. And they're just not happy people. They're just not joyful people. There's a resentment that has built up over years over the sacrifices maybe that they have made. There's an anger that has built up over the years, a kind of a low boiling anger that has built up over the years of what they have given up to live this, not my will, but your will kind of life. And what turns that, what, what allows us to live that kind of life and it be a life of joy is the act of worship. It is worshiping the one who has surrendered everything for us that allows us to surrender everything for him. And it result in joy and not frustration or anger or bitterness for what we've given up over the years. So what kind of life are you living? Like in this season, like what kind of life are you living right now? Is it a not my will, but your will kind of life, or is it a not, not your will, but my will kind of life, at least in this area of my life? Like, are you living a life of surrender? Uh, a life of surrender in the way that you steward your relationships, a life of surrender in the way that you steward your marriage, a life of surrender in the way that you steward your sexuality, a life of surrender in the way that you steward your finances and the things that God has entrusted to your care, a life of surrender in the way that you steward your vocation and the decisions that you make. You know, sometimes, and I, and I confess, I've played this game. And maybe some of you have played this game. And maybe some of you are playing this game right now with God. And that is, uh, becomes kind of a numbers game. 
And sometimes, for those of us who hang out around the church, sometimes we start playing this numbers game of God, I've, I've surrendered this, and I've surrendered this, and I've surrendered this, and I've surrendered this, and I've surrendered in this area. So given, given all of that, I think it's okay that I not surrender this. And we kind of play this numbers game with God. And God says, that's not what it means to live a, not my will, but your will, God, be done is a willingness to surrender everything to the one who surrendered everything for us. So maybe today is a, is a day of surrender for some of us. Or maybe today is a day of re-surrender. Because sometimes, at least for me, I... I feel like there's an area of my life where like I've surrendered and that's it and, and that's done. And yet, over time, I start to realize and I can't quite put my finger on exactly when it happened, but I started to take that back and I need to re-surrender it to God. Or maybe for some of us that are here or watching online, um, it's not that we just need to surrender something to God, it's that we need to surrender us to God. That we've never really said yes to God's forgiveness and his grace and everything that is ours because of his willingness to surrender for us. And today is just a day to say, God, I surrender my life to you. God, we, we just, we confess that this side of heaven, our um, struggle is oftentimes wanting to take things back and wanting to say, my will not yours in this area, this relationship, in this thing, whatever it is. So we confess that. We know it's only by your spirit that you give us the power to really surrender. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and allow us to live a, a surrendered life, a not my will, but your will be done kind of life. And that for those who have perhaps never surrendered their whole being to you, that today they would be able to pray a simple prayer of surrender. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me on the cross. Thank you for surrendering everything so that I might have life and experience forgiveness and grace. And, and I just want to say yes to that today. And Lord, we pray all of that in the name of the one who gave everything for us, the name of Jesus.
Amen. Let's stand together and worship.